Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, nice to see so many have survived the, uh, the brief visitation of the polar vortex. I love these meteorological terms that we come up with, a polar vortex. All right. Before, um, as I lead us in our time of, of uh, prayer before the sermon, um, we should keep in mind that not only is it uh, a celebratory day in terms of it being the 13th anniversary of Maranatha, but uh, our brother uh, Tom Ewan will be leaving tomorrow uh, on a missions trip with North Shore Baptist Church down to Jamaica. So we want to pray for uh, travel mercies for Tom and for the team as they go down there. So um, if you would please uh, join me in prayer then. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for grace uh, unmeasured and love untold in sending us your Son, who as our great high priest offers himself as the atoning sacrifice for sin, thereby enabling us, Father, and giving us permission, uh, access into your presence uh, anytime, anywhere, because of his perfect obedience and his righteous and perfect life. Father, we thank you that you have also given to us a message that brings this life, this hope, this truth, this glorious good news to those who have yet to taste the goodness of the Lord. And so as, uh, as Tom and the team from North Shore uh, travel down to Jamaica, we pray that you would bless their work in bearing witness to the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would watch over them, all the, the travel arrangements and plans that need to be made uh, that have been made, we pray that they would go off without any problems. And then while there, Lord, you would watch over and protect them and give them uh, the ability, Father, to, to not only share the word, but in your time to bear fruit from this good work. We thank you, Father, as well for the calling that you have placed upon our, on our life, not only to love you, uh, but also, Lord God, to love others in your name that we who were not your people now have become your people simply by an act of your sovereign grace uh, through the work of your son. We thank you for the fellowship that we enjoy uh, in and through uh, the work of your Holy Spirit. And we ask, O oh Lord God, that as we have gathered in Christ's name, as you have gathered us here to build us up uh, as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices accept, acceptable to you through Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, you would receive our praise, and then you would inspire us to greater service, more faithfulness, and, Father, that you would continue uh, to have us behold your glory, so that in all that we do, that is the thing that is uppermost and primary in all our endeavors, that we would bring glory to you and honor to your name. So speak to us now uh, from your word. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins we have in Jesus' name. Uh, Cleanse us continually with the washing of water in the word, the work of your spirit. For these things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One other thing I, I wanted to mention just in, in light of this. We, we, uh, yesterday was men's breakfast and we uh, really went after all of the verses uh, in this section because we, we just had time to do that. We won't do that today. We'll go through the We'll break it up into a couple of different sections, so we'll take our time working through this text. But one of the things that was greatly encouraging to me about our men's breakfast yesterday was not just that we walked through this passage, which was a blessing in and of itself, but just uh, as we began our time together, uh, Randy had asked the, the guys who were there what scriptures they had been reading and, and how it had been affecting them. 
And it was just a joy to listen to uh, several men just share from you know, reading from Deuteronomy or reading from Ecclesiastes or reading from other parts of the Bible that would just speak to them. So it was a, a wonderful time just to hear that. Um, you know, that there is this, I know that's one of the things that Maranatha has stressed throughout its history is not only for the men of the church, but for all those who attend and our members to dive into the word, to read the word, to allow the scripture to dominate our thinking and to direct our thoughts and to draw from it life and wisdom and guidance uh, and, and true inspiration to, to follow Christ. So I want to commend uh, the men of our church and uh, others as well. Continue to read the word because there is great benefit from doing that. Uh, we reap a, a tremendous spiritual harvest when all the members of a church are uh, studying, reading, and applying God's word. Uh, to that end, as we continue uh, today moving through the study of the, of the tools, remember a couple of weeks ago we started this, uh, this short series within the series of the tools that God has given us uh, to follow Christ and to keep him at the center of everything we do. We looked at how God gives us hope as one of those tools, which hope which enables us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus until we see him face to face. We then saw how this hope is then nurtured and nourished and strengthened by our daily obedience to the truth, that it's by that daily practice of what Jesus has taught us that we grow in our hope and in our faith and our trust in him. And today we're going to look at the third of those tools, which is that God has given us the church, because the hope that we have and the truth that he has given to us in the gospel are not meant to be practiced and lived out in isolation from other believers. So that we experience hope, we are encouraged in our hope, we live out the truth and we practice the truth in community, in a gathering of people whom God has called together and is building up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to him in Jesus' name. And so today we'll focus on how God has given us the church as this important element of uh, building and encouraging our faith that God indeed has given us the church to help us keep Jesus at the center of everything we do. That when he is at the center of everything we do, we begin to understand not only the power of God's glory, but also the power of God's glory as it's revealed and experienced within a community of people. That it's not just an individual experience uh, or even an individualistic faith that God calls us to, but it's a communal faith. It's a faith that's practiced in community and then spreads out into the wider uh, community that may not have yet heard or known or experienced or tasted the goodness of the Lord. So when we look at this text from 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 12, knowing that God has given us the church to help us keep Jesus at the center of everything we do, and that when Jesus is at the center of everything we do, he then is the cornerstone of our worship, he is the source of our identity, and he is the focus of our mission. So that's how we're going to look at these verses 4 through 12 of 2 Peter chapter 2, that as the... As we keep our, our eyes fixed on Jesus, we see him as the cornerstone of our worship, the source of our identity, and the focus of our mission. Worship, identity, mission. So we're going to look at the first of those three things this morning. That as the cornerstone of our worship, Jesus confirms our hope in him. 
we see this in these, uh, these first uh, four verses here, four through six. I'll just read them again to kind of keep them fresh in our minds. This is after having encouraged the, uh, the, the readers to rid themselves of their former practices, of their old way of life, malice, slander, and so forth. Uh, he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, some of your translations may have a marginal note after the word cornerstone, and, and they'll translate it as capstone or keystone, but the context of the passage and the context of Isaiah from which that uh, quote is drawn by Peter really points to a cornerstone, not the capstone, because cornerstone is the foundation of a building. It's, it's how you start a structure. The capstone is the end. And I think it was uh, Eric Zhang who pointed out to me, there's a neat kind of counterplay there. If Christ is a cornerstone, he's the alpha. As a capstone, he's the omega. And so it's kind of a neat little thing. But in context here, Christ is a cornerstone. He is the, the rock on which we build our lives. This is Peter would have heard Jesus say this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 when Jesus says, the wise man, the wise woman, is one who hears my words and builds his life or her life on them as on solid rock. And so this cornerstone, Jesus, is the, the very thing that we worship. We worship him as a person and he then confirms our hope. As we come to him, says Peter, the him, of course, in context being Jesus, uh, we are being built into a spiritual house. And it's interesting that the, uh, the word there, the verb come, is, is in the present tense. In other words, we could translate that opening verse as, as you continue to come to him. And the, the reason why I stress that and it's important to see as a present tense is because Jesus is a living stone. So that when we gather uh, corporately, we come to worship a living person, not a dead historical figure. We don't come here to celebrate Jesus as simply a great moral teacher who left us with these amazing words and deeds to ponder, but we actually are engaging with someone who is alive and in our midst as we gather in his name. And so the, the, the encouragement as, that Peter starts off with here is on an individual basis, as you come to Jesus in your daily worship and your daily reading of the word and your daily time of prayer, you are coming to a living person who has indwelled you by his Holy Spirit through your obedience to the truth that he has opened your heart to receive. And then on a larger level, on a corporate level, as we come to him, we worship him as a living God who breathes out his very life into us that we then may breathe that life out to others. And so there is this important aspect of continually coming to Jesus that it's just not a, a matter of reading the scripture and then closing and say, okay, I've done that. I've read all the Bible that I need to read and I can move on. No, it's just this daily encounter that we have with him through scripture, through prayer, through fellowship, through mission. And so he is 
able then to, to work in our lives in a way that confirms our hope in him. This living stone who is alive because God has raised him from the dead. This living stone who, as uh, our great high priest, the writer of uh, Hebrews tells us, is able to save completely and at all times those who are drawn to God through him because he ever lives to intercede for them. So when we come to Jesus, whether it's in our you know, private time with him or when we, especially when we come to him as a gathered assembly, we gather together in the knowledge, or we should have the knowledge, that Jesus is interceding for us as we come to him. So we may come to him this morning or in your own private time with a, a heart that is weighed down with the burdens and the cares of this life, or just maybe stone cold and hard. And the kindling that warms that heart is being prepared and has been prepared by the very fact that Christ has been praying for you, is praying for you. More than that, there is the double witness and double assurance that Paul gives us from Romans 8. That when we cannot pray, when we find it impossible to, to find the words to pray, the Spirit himself intercedes with groanings too deep for words. So there are times when you will go before the Lord in prayer, you don't feel like it, and the only thing you can do is... <sighs> and the Spirit can use that. Because Christ is interceding for you. So you're here... We're here as a result of the intercession of Christ. We are gathered here because Christ has prayed for us to gather in his name to receive from him grace and mercy and truth and encouragement, forgiveness. And if you have not had your heart open to the truth, he is also interceding that you might receive salvation in his name by trusting in him as the cornerstone of your life. Jesus is chosen and precious by God. He was rejected by men, says Peter. But God has, in opposition to that rejection by humanity, has nevertheless exalted him, giving him, Paul says, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that is on the earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it is as Lord, a living Lord, that he intercedes and prays for us. And so when we come near to Jesus, it's not like, oh, Jesus, here I am, show up. He is already here. He's been praying for you to be here. He is praying for us to be attentive to his word. That verb rejected that Peter uses here as well, it tells us that Jesus was not examined and found unworthy by humanity in a cavalier way or in a careless way. But they subjected him, as I told the men yesterday, to a thousand-point quality inspection and still turned him out and still threw him on the garbage pile. But God, in contrast to that, found him chosen and precious by the very fact that he was obedient despite being rejected, despite being alienated and turned out by his own. 
So we talked about this at the, the Bible study yesterday. So if in, at your place of work, you are turned out, you are rejected, you are turned away because you won't participate in the after-hour activities that go on as a result of work, at which by going to them, you may somehow be inculcated into the inner circle. By staying out of that, God will honor you. You may be rejected by men, but God will honor you for your faithfulness to him. So then when you're tempted to sort of pad the expense account or pad the numbers for the quarterly reviews and choose not to, when you refuse to engage in the, the office gossip, whether it's in person or online, and are turned aside for that, understand that Jesus is praying for you in that moment. And that by refusing the honor of men, you will be chosen and precious and honored by God. Jesus is a life-giving stone who gives life to those who trust in him. That those whom the world rejects, he redeems. Those whom the world would throw away, he saves. Those whom the world would treat and regard as trash, God rescues. More than that, he adopts as his own. And those whom the world declares unworthy, God declares to be worthy. So worthy that he saves, delivers, rescues, and redeems with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as of a spotless lamb. And then, and then he gives us a home. He gives us a family. He gives us an identity, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, says Peter. He gives us a mission to not only worship him, but then to bend that worship vertically so that our neighbors can see how the glory of God has so changed our lives that we have the opportunity to reflect and to shine that glory outward. That's what priests do. We bring sacrifices to him and then we bring to the people, whether they know Christ or not, we bring to him. This is the God that we worship. This is the God who transforms lives. This is the God who gives life, who breathes life into dead homes, into dead hearts, into dead people, into dead jobs, into dead careers, and revives them and makes them alive. And he brings them into a relationship with him and with others who have been called to do the same. We are this priesthood, says Peter, because everyone now who trusts in the name of Christ, he says, has access, open access, God's permission into his holy presence. In the Old Testament, only the Levites, only those who were descendant of Levi were permitted to serve in the temple. And then only those within the tribe of Levi who were direct descendants of Aaron, could enter into the, the Holy of Holies, this place that was reserved and cordoned off from the rest of the temple. Behind a thick curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. And only once a year could the high priest enter into that 
But now, Peter says, because of what Christ has done as our high priest and as our sacrifice, that veil has been torn from top to bottom. And now we have open access, God's permission, to come into his presence anytime, anywhere. Moreover, in the Old Testament, before Aaron could even serve or minister in the presence of God in the temple, he had to wash himself with water before he put on the priestly garments. And then once he was dressed, he had to make numerous animal sacrifices for sin, both for the people and then for himself, and then he could serve. But now that Jesus has come, all of those washings, all of that preparation, all of those sacrifices have been fulfilled in him and by him and through him. And so that our purification is not with water, but by the fact that the blood of Christ has been applied to our heart and life by the Holy Spirit. So it's an inward cleansing that is revealed and demonstrated by outward work. We have been purified. We have purified ourselves not by our own work, but by grace. It's through the precious blood of Christ. And it is by that blood and by his faith we now come into God's presence exactly as we are, warts and all. We struggle with this. We struggle with this because we drag ourselves sometimes unwillingly or are dragged by others into the presence of God. Feeling as if we have to clean ourselves up before God will accept us, before God will welcome us into his presence. That is not the case. Because Christ has taken the, the filthy rags of our sin and our own self-righteousness the filthy rags of our own self-pity and self-condemnation, and he has nailed them to the cross. And there they stay. There they stay. And he has now dressed us in his righteousness, his goodness, his glory. That when we enter into God's presence, that's how he sees us. Not as those who are dejected with ashes piled upon our head but are those who have been made clean and radiant and pure and holy, a holy priesthood, a royal nation, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through him. We have purified ourselves by obedience to the truth, by faith in that blood of Christ. And then having purified ourselves, we are able to make spiritual sacrifices. What are those? What are these spiritual sacrifices? Well, it, it, it means we don't have to bring an animal into God's presence as a means of sacrifice. We don't bring anything physical, if you will, other than ourselves into his presence. Uh, there's a, an old hymn you may have sung it at one point. You may know of it. It's an old hymn written by Augustus Toplady, which in and of itself is an interesting name. But Toplady wrote the, the famous hymn, Rock of Ages. And the middle two stanzas of that hymn sum up what Peter means when he talks about spiritual sacrifices. Not the labor of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save, thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, 
Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. I don't know if you feel like that sometimes. I do. And I'm a pastor. I've been doing this for a long time. And I'm constantly reminded when I don't feel worthy to enter into God's presence. He says, of course you're not worthy in and of yourself. But dressed in the robes of my son, come in, sit down. Let's have a conversation. Let's meet. Come. Let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, I have washed them whiter than snow. You feel like that sometimes? How could God use me? How could God still love me? Why would he love me? Why would he even use me? Of what value am I? Of what worth am I? Your worth to him is demonstrated in the fact that he spilled the precious blood of his son to bring you into that relationship with him. That as we have sung about it and heard about it, he came looking for us. We who feel worthless, useless, valueless. He came looking for us, knowing we felt like that. That he might bestow upon us worth and value and make us useful. In whatever capacity. In whatever capacity. I remember in seminary, all of us, you know, we'd hear stories of the, you know, the great reformers, you know, that by age 26, Calvin wrote the Institutes. 26! At 26, I was still learning how to tie my shoe. <laughs> Fluent in all of these languages, and, you know, all of these things you hear about, and you think, oh man, there's just no way. And God says, that's Calvin's story. What's your story? That's the road I chose for him. Your road lies in a different path. Don't compare yourself to anyone else, not even to Jesus. Whatever you are experiencing, whatever you will experience, is part of God molding, shaping, and conforming you into the image of his son. And he is doing that having made you a living stone, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to him. It is the most human thing in the world to feel worthless in God's sight. But it is the most spiritually blessed thing to realize that the more we stare at Jesus, the more we behold the glory of God in Christ, the more we begin to reflect that glory, the more we begin to reflect that beauty, that wholeness, that holiness, that goodness, that righteousness. And it's not a matter of giving ourselves a pep talk and saying, you know, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. I'm, I'm, it, no, it's a matter of just breathing in the incense of his grace and his mercy. So it doesn't matter if you write a book or achieve a great thing 
What matters is at the end of our lives, have you been faithful to what God has called you to do? Because for some of us, the good works that God has prepared for us is to just take care of our family, just to show up at work every day and to put in those eight hours, 12 hours, 14 hours, and to come home and involve ourselves in the lives of our family, to raise children in the fear and knowledge of God, to be a faithful husband, a faithful wife. Do you understand that that is a blessing? That that is a powerful testimony in and of itself? That's a function of being a royal priesthood. That's a function of being a holy nation, of instilling not only into your spouse or your brother or your children an understanding of who God is, that in and of itself that is a miracle of God's grace because that's fulfilling a calling that he has placed upon us. These spiritual sacrifices that we bring to him, presenting ourselves, as Paul says, as living sacrifices, having our mind transformed by the renewing of it through the work of the Spirit. Some of these spiritual sacrifices involve the things that Peter talks about at the start of chapter 2. Getting rid of the things of our old way of life, putting aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all slander, and all envy, so that in their place might come good things, speech that builds up rather than tears down, and in place of envy, an honest and sincere desire to pray for the well-being of others and that God would continue to bless them. And not as they say down south, when they say bless your heart, they don't mean bless your heart. They mean something else. But when you say it, when we say it, we mean bless your heart. Confessing our sins is part of offering spiritual sacrifices. Psalm 51, 17, you know, David writing that great hymn of penitence there in, in, in the Psalms, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God will not despise. It, an old pastor friend of mine once told me, he said, when you look out at your, at your congregation on a Sunday morning, understand, assume that seven out of ten of them are there with a broken heart or are broken in some way. If not presently, then in the past. And if not in the past, soon. And so when you're broken, and when you're brokenhearted, and you come into God's presence, whether privately or in the midst of a corporate worship gathering, and it hurts to sing songs of praise, and it hurts to lift your voice in adoration to God, that is a sacrifice of praise. And that does not go unnoticed because God, the Holy Spirit, is praying for you in the midst of your brokenness and Christ is interceding for you as well. I, I, just ponder that for a moment. And you can sense if Christ is interceding and if the Spirit intercedes, you can see why the psalmist would write in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, why are you downcast, O my soul? Preach the gospel to yourself and understand. Understand and just be overwhelmed with that. 
when we confess our sins before God as an act of spiritual worship, the ability to do that, the willingness to do that, that's an act of grace. That's a work of the Holy Spirit drawing you to the throne of grace that you might find grace and receive mercy to help in time of need. The humility that is required to go to someone else and say, I have sinned against you, please forgive me. Let us, what can we do, what can I do to restore trust and rebuild this relationship? That is an act of grace. That is a spiritual sacrifice that cements the body and builds trust. On the positive side of, of spiritual sacrifices, you have what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 19 to 20, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's casting your burdens onto the Lord because he cares for you. It's, it's doing what Paul encourages us to do in, in Philippians uh, 4. Right? Do not be anxious about anything. Indeed, in every situation, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, tell your requests to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. And then Peter himself says later on in this letter, humble yourselves before, uh, therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. It's a constant humility. It may be a constant casting because it's a constant trusting because it's a constant coming to him. It's a constant relying on him. It's not simply a matter of just praying it once and then walking away, but it may require that daily casting upon him those anxieties and those burdens. And that desire to make those sacrifices, here's the thing, you may feel like, oh, I am the worst Christian possible because I'm making these requests, but I don't feel it. The fact that you're making the requests is an indication that God is at work in you. If you're complaining, to whom are you complaining? Not the air, but the God who made you, who redeemed you, who has placed you in that very situation. Read Job and see how God receives Job's complaint and then lays before him all of his glory, all of his greatness, and Job sees all of his problems in that perspective. Building a life on Christ as a cornerstone includes all of those things. And Jesus wasn't put to shame by trusting in God. He prayed in the garden for the cup to pass by him. He cried out the prayer of dereliction on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But God did not disappoint, did not put Jesus to shame. Because he raised him from the dead. And all those who trust in Christ will share in that resurrection. That is the promise. 
So this sense of not being put to shame has a double edge to it. On the one hand, by trusting him, by committing ourselves to him, by praying to him, God will not disappoint. He will not turn a deaf ear to our prayer. He will not turn a deaf ear or a deaf eye to our sacrifice. But he will answer. He will respond. And then on the other side of that is at the end of time, when we stand at the judgment, God won't turn us aside. He won't look at the Lamb's book of life and say, sorry, I, I, I don't see your name here. Your name won't be erased. It will appear there. To have that kind of trust, to have that kind of certainty is part of what it means to be a holy priesthood. A spiritual house. Paul refers to the, the church as the temple of the living God in whom he is dwelling by his spirit. Our salvation is a result of Christ's dual work as high priest and sacrifice. And that sets the stage for our dual role as living stones and holy priests. Stones, hearts that have been made alive through trust in Christ for the very purpose of serving him and then serving others in his name. And we do that through participation in the church because it's through the church that God helps us keep Jesus at the center of everything we do. And, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up this section with this uh, illustration. And the, and the idea of God building us up into a spiritual house. If you go into the Old Testament and you read First uh, Kings... You'll see there in 1 Kings 6, Solomon's commissioned the construction of the temple. And in verse 7 of 1 Kings 6, the writer says this, that when the house was built, meaning the temple, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the temple when it was being built. In other words, all of the preparation done to the stones was done off-site. So that the only thing they had to do is just move the stones in place. Now, listen to, jump forward to the end of the book in Revelation 3. This is Jesus talking to the church at Philadelphia, a church that is about to undergo a time of testing and trial and persecution. And that he is commending them as well for their current faith. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance... I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And then here's the point. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven from my God and my own new name. Now, what does that mean? Why do I bring 1 Kings and the Revelation together? Here's why. It means that you and I, well, first of all, it means 1 Kings points forward or anticipates Revelation 3. And what that tells me is that you and I are works in progress. Because the, even though the stones used to build the temple were dressed off-site, Revelation 3 anticipates a day when the temple will be complete. 
But Peter calls us living stones. Living stones that God is continually shaping and molding and sculpting. You want to know why it is that you don't sometimes get along with someone else at church? Or you rub someone the wrong way or they rub you the wrong way in church? Could be your wife, could be your mom or your dad, could be your brother. Could be another brother or sister. You know why that is? Because you've got rough edges and they've got rough edges. And the Holy Spirit takes an iron chisel or a fine tool and he sculpts off those rough edges. He's preparing us for that moment when we will be a pillar in the temple of God in Revelation 3. It also means that all those trials that you go through, all those disappointments you feel, all the bitterness that you've experienced, Like a stonemason, skilled at his work, the Holy Spirit is chipping away all of the bits of our old way of life. All of the malice, all of the envy, all of the hurt, all of the pain. Perfecting us. Because none of us come to the kingdom fully dressed. We gather as living stones so that by living together, worshiping together, serving together, God might smooth off those rough edges in preparing us for the moment, for the day when eternity kicks in and we're in the temple of God forever. So until that day, let us strive to keep Jesus at the center of everything we do because he's the cornerstone of our worship He's the source of our identity. He's the focus of our mission. May we all then continue uh, to come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, that we, who are now in Christ, chosen and precious before God, would continue being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, that we too would offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, in and through our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. You think about that, and let's prepare our hearts uh, to receive the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together.